welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and we're going to be going around the world today because my first guest is Bill Scheller, who has written a wonderful collection of essays. It's called In All Directions, 30 Years of Travel. Hey, Bill, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, Pauline, thank you. So this is such a fun book, and it really does take us to many of the less visited parts of the world. When you became a, tra- a travel writer, was that your intention? Did you want to go to the places very few other people went to? I mean, it also goes to some of the more standard locations, too. But I, I was most impressed with the fact that you go to like a series of islands off the coast of Canada that are still owned by France, and you go <laughs> to other places that I've never met anybody who went to them. Well, I did start off wanting to go to those places, but I had to start off uh, fairly humbly by mostly writing articles about New England, where I live, right? Uh, and then expanded from there. And I was fortunate to have uh, some very imaginative editors of some of the travel magazines I worked for, uh, who were more than happy to send me to some of these uh, off-the-beaten-path places. Yeah, and a set of islands you talk about, because you worked for Islands Magazine for quite some time. Uh, you, you titled this one Islands in the Fog, and it was St. Pierre and Miquelon. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly, and those were the ones I talked about in the introduction. Uh, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about those places. Well, St. Pierre and Miquelon uh, are the last remnants of France's great New World Empire. Uh, they bounced back and forth like a lot of islands between Great Britain and France over the years, but wound up in, in France's possession, and they now constitute an overseas department of France. Uh, they send representatives to the uh, French National Assembly. The only unusual thing about them is that they're located just a few miles off the coast of Newfoundland. You know, a lot of people think, well, they must have something to do with French uh, uh, Canada, with Quebec, which they don't. Uh, they they exist entirely apart from Quebec. They speak a different somewhat more modern dialect of French. It's more like metropolitan French. Huh. And of course, a lot of fishing goes on there. It's also a transshipment point for various goods. It played a role in prohibition uh, when bootleggers use it as a, a shipment point. They had a warehouse there that could hold a million cases of liquor. Wow. Most of which was, was uh, headed for the U.S., Huh. And nobody thought to look there, I guess, because it's, it's well, a somewhat obscure place. Or did they get caught? No, they didn't. It was part of France. Uh, it was completely outside of uh, American and, and even Canadian jurisdiction. Uh, but Saint-Pierre is the populated island. I think it has about 5,000 people. Miquelon only has a few hundred. Uh, and it's it's a wonderful, desolate place. Very beautiful. Mm. It sounded like it in your description. You've also been lucky enough to get to Italy a number of times. In fact, you drove the entire coast of Italy, which you describe as being a 300-mile journey that took you 2,600 miles to do. Why is that? Well, I, I could have... Uh traveled from one side of Italy to the next uh, without following the coast. But my explicit uh, instructions from my editor at Washington Post magazine was to follow the the coast as closely as possible from France to what was then Yugoslavia. Uh, so I you know, made a reasonable amount of head, headway each day uh, without really you know trying to go too fast because I wanted to see things along the way. But the interesting thing was I never knew where I was going to fetch up uh, each night. Right, uh, I right. I would look at the map. Uh, 
you know, th- th- this was in 1990. There was no uh, no GPS, and I wouldn't have used it if there had been. Uh, but I, I just, you know, drove and stayed as close to the coast as possible and saw some wonderful little towns that most people never get to. Took took all those three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it seemed like an idyllic journey. And at one point, you realize you're in southern Italy because suddenly the people all around you look like the folks you grew up with in New Jersey. <laughs> they, they looked like them and they sounded like them. Uh, they they dropped the terminal vowels from uh, from their words, just like uh, people I knew. I, I'm half Italian. My mother's Italian. Ah. Yeah, and in another story in my book, I talk about going back uh, to her ancestral town with her. But no, it's true. Uh, Southern Italy had a distinct New Jersey feel about it. That's so funny. And, and where was your mother's ancestral town? Tell us a little uh, bit about that. My great-grandmother... Uh, and great-grandfather were born in a town called Solopaca, which is, I guess, the nearest city of any size is Benevento. Uh, Solopaca has three or 4,000 people, and I still have relatives there today, so we were able to stay with them, and uh, they... they but wait, before we, before we go any further, I don't think people will know where Benevento is either. Where oh, in Italy that, is that? Is it the heel of the boot, or...? No, not that far south. Uh, okay. That would be Calabria. Benevento and, and Solopaca are in Campania, which the, the largest city of which is Naples. Ah, so okay. we're inland from Naples, uh, probably about an hour and a half. So, so around the ankle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry to sorry no, to interrupt. Okay. So, so your your family was from there. Did you still have family members living in Solopaca? Is that, am I pronouncing it right? Yes, you are. And uh, <laughs> I've been there a few times, and I do have family members. The um, my my grandmother's uh, uh, first cousin's son lives there. Uh, now, I wouldn't know what that means in terms of how many times removed he might be, but, uh, <clears throat> but I have been very fortunate when I go there because my Italian is not all that great. Uh, he happens to be married uh, to a woman who was brought up in Tito's Yugoslavia, where everybody had to learn English from kindergarten. Ah, and so you're able to get along in English there. Well, do you see, I mean, what did your family do there? Why did they leave? And how was it for your mother when you went back? Oh, my mother. Uh, I, I have this mental image of my mother walking down the street with a with a bag of sausage and peppers from the local market, <laughs> looking like somebody whose relatives had never left Solopaca. Wow. <laughs> but but what uh, the interesting thing about my great grandmother's father is that he was an artist who specialized in religious painting, <laughs> uh, and I actually saw some of the work that he did in Little Chapel in Solopaca. Why she came here is because my great grandfather. Uh, who was a shoemaker, uh, had spent some time in the U.S., saved a little money, bought a couple of nice suits, and went back to his home village and married above his station. He brought my great-grandmother to the U.S. saying it was basically a honeymoon, and she never saw Italy again. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that amazing? Because there were a lot of Italians who went back and forth, who lived in the U.S. for a couple of years and then moved back to Italy. Uh, It was a different immigration pattern to many other types of immigrants, but I guess not in your family. They they came, they came and they, they never came back. So how did your mother feel about seeing this ancestral town? Oh, she was absolutely fascinated with it. Uh, she, she just, as I say, she, she, Quickly, well, the funny thing is that she uh, didn't know Italian very well, but what Italian she knew was in the local dialect, which is called Solopaghese, oh. because she learned it from her great-grandmother. Right. 
uh, I tried to learn as much Italian as I could using uh, tapes and CDs. And, and uh, the joke was that I sounded like a professor from Milan who was trying to put on the dog, <laughs> whereas my mother sounded like somebody who might have lived in Solopaca. Now, this isn't a place that tourists go to, obviously. It, should it be? I mean, what, what is there to see and do in and around that region? It's, it's not a place I've ever been. Well, very few tourists would make it to Solopaca. Some make it to a nearby town called Talese Terme, where there are mineral baths, uh, ah. sort of a spa town. And the town of Benevento itself has a very beautiful and extremely well-preserved Arch of Trajan, hmm. uh, which, uh, like many of those Roman arches, uh, has friezes that document all of Trajan's accomplishments as emperor and the campaigns he fought. One of the campaigns was in Mesopotamia, and I was there for the first time, right around the time that uh, uh, George W. Bush had invaded Iraq. So I had I had this image in my mind of people invading Mesopotamia 2,000 years apart. Wow, what timing. You also went to Sardinia, which is a place I've always wanted to go, but you didn't go to the resorty side of Sardinia. So what is there to see and do on that Italian isle? Well, the resort uh, part of Sardinia is the, uh, I guess it's in the northeast, the Costa Smeralda, the Emerald Coast, right. which is where people like Silvio Berlusconi have their villas. Uh, I was in the capital, Cagliari, uh, which is in the extreme south. And then I was only there for a couple of days and then just took off in a car and explored the hinterlands, uh, where I found probably the wildest, uh, uh, most unpopulated countryside that I've seen in Western Europe. Uh, beautiful mountainous areas that uh, have tiny little dirt roads with sheep walking across them. You can easily get lost. And uh, it's uh, it's a part of Europe that very few people know much about. Uh, as you say, yeah. you know, most people who know Sardinia know the resort areas. Right. Well, at one point you go on a chartered boat, uh, which takes you to what sounds like the most idyllic cove. You say that uh, the rock formations look like something Gaudi would have created. They're just kind of rising up in this brutalistic beauty. And you sit on the boat and with the folks, the captain gives you pecorino cheese made by the local sh sheep's milk and and some of the local wine. What is the wine like in Sardinia? The wine is, is uh, very uncomplicated. It's, it's generally uh, quite... Uh, full-bodied, as I say, an uncomplicated flavor. It's a hearty, rich uh, peasant wine for the most part. I'm sure there are probably some more sophisticated vintages, but uh, the ones I had, especially the wine that he served on the boat, which he mixed with the juice of blood oranges. I know. I'd never heard of that before. What does that taste like? It, it tastes <laughs> it tastes heavenly. Um, you know, perhaps wine connoisseurs would find it... Uh, you know, a, a, not a nice thing to do to uh, to do to a good wine or even a even a good uh, peasant wine. But it was so refreshing. And, and mm. sitting there uh, eating, uh, well, we were, he made spaghetti with a with a homemade sauce that he made right on the boat at a fresh wow. tomato. And we were eating the Italian, uh, the Sardinian bread, uh, which uh, the, Ita the Italian or Sardinian dialect word for it is uh, music sheets because it's very mm. thin. It looks wow. like sheet music and pecorino cheese and just sopping down this wonderful blood orange mixture with the wine. Um, and I was the only person on the boat other than the captain and the mate because we had dropped off the English tourists partway along <laughs> so they could hike. 
Right. And they, the poor English tourists had, had to dine on, you know, stale sandwiches while you, you got this freshly made meal on the boat. No, it just right. sounded I, idyllic. <laughs> I was lucky to be the one that stayed for the whole trip. <laughs> right. Now, I, I'm going to ask you the question that I always hate being asked. Do you have a favorite place that you visited? Well, well, I hate to answer this because everybody will go there now. No, but, uh, everybody has already been to Venice, and that's probably uh, a place I've, I've been there probably three or four times now. Most mm. recently spent a week there in 2017, and I'm just endlessly fascinated with the far nooks and crannies of the city that people usually don't go to. Yeah, no, I know. You, you start one of your essays on Venice by saying you could smell the laundry, which is not something I ever associate with Venice. But I guess if you get into the right neighborhoods, you can actually see how the few people who live there live. Yes, you do. Uh, there are there are neighborhoods that, as I say, that tourists seldom get to, and they're the ones that tend to be most heavily inhabited by the locals. Sadly, uh, they've gone down in population from about 170,000 in the early 50s to about 50,000 now. Yeah. No, it's going to be very interesting coming out of the pandemic because Venice is really changing how it's accepting tourists. It's going to be limiting the numbers. Uh, it won't have cruise ships dropping them off directly in the city anymore. And day trippers are, are going to be limited. So it may revive. It may become more of a local city once again. But just like you, I love it. It's, it's an extraordinary place. Well, it's been a delight speaking with you, Bill. And for full disclosure, Bill was one of our wonderful authors on Fromer's New England. Am I reaching you in Vermont right now? Yes, I'm right here in um, my little town in central Vermont. Are the trees turning yet? We are just about at peak. Oh, boy. Oh, and the wow. weather's been gorgeous. Uh, it's been just perfect days for foliage viewing for the past couple of days. Ah, well, lucky you. Well, Thank you so much, Bill, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Well, thank you, Pauline. It's been, been a lot of fun. Our next guest is Danny Guerrero. He is the Vice President for North American Strategy for MMGY Global. Now, that's not a name I expect our listeners to know, but if you were in the travel industry, you would know that name because they are the largest marketing firm that deals with travel. And they also do a lot with so-called travel intelligence. Uh, they look into patterns and trends and let their uh, clients know so that they can better shape their travel products. Hey, Danny, thank you so much for appearing on the From a Travel Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So we're going to talk about the travel industry as a whole in a moment. Uh, but what caught my eye was you guys just did a very interesting study of what Hispanic travelers want. And I got to ask, why is it important? And this is somewhat of a, I don't know, maybe it's not a real question because I know why it's important, but I'd love to hear why you think it's important that you slice and dice uh, travelers in this way. Absolutely. Thank you for thank you for the question. And it's a very good question. 
at, at MMGY Travel Intelligence, you know, one of the things that we at MMGY Global, should I say, one of the things that we always say and part of our value system here is just the power of travel, right? Um, the ability to connect communities and, and travelers from all walks of life. Um, inclusivity is a, a value we all cherish here. And a couple of years ago, uh, we realized that we had been putting out research for nearly 40 years on the intensive travelers and also realize that, you know, the face of America is changing and the needs and desires of individuals shift. And one of the questions we ask ourselves is, you know, what can we do to illuminate the needs of underrepresented and under-researched travelers? Hmm. So uh, in 2020, partly and, and very importantly, through the situation with the tragic murder of George Floyd, yeah. We really went all in and our first study was focused on black travelers and really exposing some very necessary truths about the way black consumers in America feel about the travel experience and their intent. And so we've continued that uh, journey and we intend to do so for many groups. Uh, so Vistas Latinas, which is the name of the, the research that just came out, is the second study of its kind to help travel marketers and travelers feel seen, travelers of Hispanic descent feel seen. And the research is, you know, showing us a pretty interesting things about uh, how travelers of Hispanic background feel about um, seeing themselves, seeing their culture and the experiences they look for. Well, I thought that was to me the most interesting part of the study that, well, A, Hispanic travelers want to be called Hispanic, not not so much Latino or Latinx or, or one of those terms. But they really, really want to study their own culture when they mm. travel. I guess they're less interested in going to France and more interested in going to uh, South America. What did you see? Well, it's interesting you say that because that's one of the, I guess, one of the pitfalls of putting studies like this. It's It tends to, let's say... Um, have a you know a, a message of, of of a group being a monolithic in in intent and sure. and certainly we um, the the purpose of the study is to illuminate the power of the spend of the Hispanic traveler uh, almost one hundred and fourteen billion dollars in twenty nineteen wow um, yeah it's significant and that's just domestic spend and 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 so when we look at other facets, it's important that we realize that it's not a monolithic group, right? So sure. one of the things that we did in this research study was ensure that we had a representative sample of Hispanics across the U.S. And we know that the study tells us 50% of those taking the survey are of Mexican heritage, with others being Puerto Rican, Cuban, Central American. So, so preferences change depending where you live in the country, huh. um, your generation. So how many you know, were you born in the U.S.? Um, what language you speak? The study was carried out in two languages. To answer your question, um, it's true that Hispanics uh, appreciate and want to see their culture reflected for a variety of reasons. There's pride in culture. There's this need to connect with culture. You know, 88% took the survey in English. Hmm. And uh, most travelers are three generations plus um, wow. U.S. born. So yeah. there's this uh, there's this fascinating uh, point of people wanting to re-explore their roots. And to the part about Hispanic, you know, the fact of the matter is with most uh, individuals being U.S. born and speaking English, Hispanic is a term most people identify with. When you look at people who were born elsewhere or didn't take the, the survey in English, Latino is most prevalent because those individuals likely speak Spanish 
And Hispanic is not a Spanish word. So again, this is uh, this is where it gets really interesting and where I think marketers and travel brands need to look a little bit deeper in the research to really ensure that um, there is useful takeaways. Um, and and, tra- and Hispanic travelers want to go everywhere, not just not just Latin American destinations. Um, culinary travel we see is very important for millennials. They want to do they want to go to restaurants with uh, you know famous famous chefs. They want to do shopping in historical sites. But th- the point being is for any brand or destination that um, can connect to the Hispanic experience, that's always going to be a plus. Well, it's interesting that you say that it that, that it was a lot of folks who are second, third generation. Because when I first read that about Hispanic people wanting to go to Hispanic destinations, I thought, oh, kind of like a busman's holiday. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's that famous phrase having to do with a bus driver wanting to go on a bus somewhere. But it's not this isn't them being insular. Right. It, it more has to do with reconnecting with roots. It doesn't have to do with the idea of being able to flex their Spanish language skills and absolutely. getting. To, yeah, absolutely. We and it's, you know, the funny thing, Pauline, is, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, I, I make this reference a lot. I was watching the Linda Ronstadt documentary recently. And Linda Ronstadt is, is, you know, singer from from back in the 60s, 70s, who my mother listened to a lot. She happens to be of Mexican heritage and lived in in Tucson or lives in, in uh, Arizona and made a made a comment that, you know, older generations, her grandparents were not allowed to speak Spanish huh. you know, in the in when they were when they were children. And so there was this history of assimilation. And you see it in the research, you know, boomers. Um, we didn't we didn't measure a silent generation here, but boomers say they they don't really speak a lot of Spanish and haven't done that because I think generationally it wasn't encouraged. Assimilation was encouraged. What right. you see now with Gen X, uh, with boomer, oh, sorry, with millennials and Gen Z is there's this embracing of Spanish language and you see it in, in media. You see it in, in, in music formats like bachata or reggaeton. You see it in the culture, right? Um, so there is this pride that I think people have about being of this background and celebrating it and also using it as a point to connect to each other is interesting. And, and even the research says, you know, uh, millennials and Gen Z want to uh, experience cultures and it doesn't have to be just from the, the country where you originate, but any Latin culture. Right. For uh, purposes of cultural enrichment, whereas older individuals just want to be in a setting that's comfortable and familiar to huh. connect with loved ones. So it really, again, generationally is very interesting to see how this research tells us more about the, you know, the motivations and interests of Hispanic travelers. Well, speaking of uh, talking with loved ones, you also found that a large percentage want to travel with those loved ones. They want to travel yeah. with family members. Is that more so with Hispanic travelers than other ethnic groups? I will use some personal experiences as I am Mexican-American first generation uh, and then and then related back to the research. So uh, typically a lot of my travel and I'm in my early 40s now, but when I was younger, a lot of my exploration internationally was done alone. And then I came back and told my mom all about these places that she had never been and dreamt of going to. And there is this, um, I think in the Latino Hispanic culture, there is this obviously strong connection with family and family bonds and travel increasingly for, I think, upward mobile Hispanics 
um, is becoming a way to expand horizons and allow, you know, our parents and our grandparents a way to experience culture, experience life experiences that they may not have had, depending on, you know, depending on where they were born and their income levels. Um, The research is telling us that uh, millennials and Gen X are more likely to travel with their immediate family. Um, 60% of millennials and 50, over 50% of Gen X actually have children in the household. So it's, it's a group that does travel. That's not to say there are not individual travelers or couples who travel. You know, the research tells us there's a significant amount of individuals who are going out on their own and doing luxury trips to Europe and beyond. But, but, low, but for the large part in the research and and also, Pauline, I want to make a note. The research uh, visas Latinas, um, the two-part study, the, the second part was deployed, you know, during the pandemic. Ah, so, sure. And, Did things you know, change a lot? And, and, and things things shift over time. One yeah. of the things, you know, that we saw with, um, with intent was a lot of decisions on where to go were based on, one, the risk around COVID, um, which is still a concern. You know, 55% said they were concerned that they might contract it or a a family member might contract it. Um, And two was finances. We know we see Mm -hmm. black and brown communities were disproportionately affected by the effects of job losses or uh, cuts in hours originally earlier in the pandemic. So that leads to that led some Hispanics to think about, well, how much do I want to spend on travel? It's important to me, but I also want to be responsible with finances. So, so the, the study is great in that it paints a, a, a great picture about what Hispanics want and what they want to see. But also, it, you know, it's it's unfortunate that that it's done this year because it obviously is skewed somewhat because sure. of the pandemic. Yeah. Now, I know in the past, studies of all American travelers have mm-hmm. always found that family travel is a is a big, big majority of, of what people are doing. And part of that had to do with the fact that families are more dispersed right now. You yeah. know, uh, the, the, the kids live in different cities because that's yeah. where their career took them. Right. Are those same patterns in his, the Hispanic community too? It's interesting. Um, when we look at the top five travel motivators, we like to say everybody of all walks of life typically travels for relaxation and exploration. And that's no different here. 85% say they want to relax. 80, over 80% say they want to explore new places. But the following three categories are around family. Hmm. Family fun, reconnecting with important people in their life that was important, and, and, and exploring nature and, and outdoor activities, which is I want to talk about a little bit because it's, it's one thing that's emerging with, with Hispanic travelers, the outdoors, especially among millennials. Huh. To, answer, to answer your question... Uh, Hispanic Hispanic uh, family units have typically stayed closer together. Um, you know, typically, typically, and uh, this might be changing a bit, but typically, children uh, leave the home later in life. The pandemic, as we know, has caused a lot of young professionals who might have lost employment to go back home. And so, when you look at the incidence of how millennials and Gen Z, specifically the younger generation, are traveling with family, I would say that's an accurate representation that a lot of these family units are closer together. And so, some of the destinations they're choosing or experiences are largely going to be influenced by that group decision mentality. Ah, oh, interesting. What's so a what? What is another big takeaway that we haven't hit yet? 
from the study. I, I think the importance of culinary. So I mentioned this is a two-part study. In 2019, we call it the Shifley Performance Monitor data that, that tracks uh, and spend over time and intent showed us that Hispanics are spending more than most groups on food and beverage. Oh. And typically what we see the breakdown is one, transportation and two, lodging. For Hispanics, the, the, the amount of spend on transportation and food and beverage were equal. And the study in the part two phase of it showed that culinary and culinary experiences are highly coveted and not just you know, Latinx or Hispanic cultural, uh, you know, culturally rooted dining experiences, but all kinds. So depending on your generation, younger folks want to go to the street food vendors, want to feel like they're uh, trying out edgy experiences and older individuals want to make sure that they're trying those places out as a way to reconnect with culture, the pride that they have in, let's say, that Puerto Rican restaurant or Colombian restaurant. So food is always important for when you look at even the destinations that ranked high in terms of where these travelers are going in the last right. couple of years, you see a lot of connection with the culture uh, and and food. And so I think it's really important way to um, to think about um, if you're a destination that isn't necessarily, you know, has a large Latin representation that there are always going to be restaurants that can be promoted or restaurant experiences that I think will resonate with any Hispanic traveler. Interesting. All right, let's let's broaden this now, because obviously you guys study the entire travel industry. Are we recovering <laughs> right now, or has yeah. there been a major setback that has made things a little harder to predict? What 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 are you what are you seeing on the graphs? Are they going up or are they bumpy? <laughs> the graphs are staying positive. The graphs oh. are you know in spite of Delta, which was at first a bit scary for our industry. Yeah, um, starting with our spring. So we uh, published this wonderful piece of research called the Portrait of the American Travelers. And this year, it's there is uh, being released quarterly. So we're now in the fall edition. Starting in summer, we started in spring. Actually, we started to see a strong intent. Um, in uh, the demand for travel, domestic travel mostly, uh, people are still hesitant about international travel. So sure. the domestic travel has been up. We saw the index. We have this uh, this index called the Traveler Sentiment Index. Our reach uh, levels we had not seen since started the, the the start of tracking of this back in, in back in summer and spring of of this year. And the the index has um, has held pretty well. It's up three points uh, in terms of what we're tracking compared to early summer. And so what we're seeing is a lot of the the travel activities people. People have been out on the road. We saw summer travel demand, airline demand be really high. And what we're seeing now going into fall is while that is uh, slowing down a bit, it's certainly still at record levels for what we've seen even before the pandemic. So really? very positive news. Yeah, very positive news for for travel in general. It seems like, though, there's been a shift in where people are going and not just domestic versus international. I just edited a book on, on the state of Maine and I wrote one on New York City. In Maine now, hotels are more expensive than they are in New York City because that's yes. where everybody's been going. It seems like there's been this big move away from the urban and towards the rural. Are you finding that in your studies? Definitely what's happening now is a return somewhat to interest in 
uh, cultural capitals, large cities. I think you saw a lot of travel in spring and summer favor destinations that were outside of the urban cores, the urban centers. And our research was showing that, that road trip was at one of the highest, especially for road trip intent for families. Um, what you're seeing now is a lot of comeback campaigns. So N- yeah, NYC and company, the promotion uh, body for New York City is doing a great campaign around the comeback of the city and culture. Yeah, and you're seeing, for you're all seeing... of October before we leave that, they are putting, it was kind of amazing what they did. They got every major cultural institution in this city to go on sale for the month of October. So you can get into a lot of museums for free or paying what you want or two for the price of one. Hotels are on sale. I've never seen prices like this. And I've been covering New York City for 20 years. Uh, It's it's, very impressive. And so what's happening is the competitiveness of the markets kicking in. Um, you see that boomers, originally boomers were the ones spending more money, but staying closer to home. So mm-hmm. a lot of driving a lot of the demand you mentioned to drive destinations. Now millennials and even Gen Z are starting to pick up. And what they want to do is culture. They want to do big cities. They want to do outdoors as well, but they're more interested. So while their their spend is a bit less by volume, they want to do more and have intentions now also to do overseas travel. And we, we know we hear a lot of news about the opening of borders now to Europe and international destinations. And so what you're going to see likely in the next few months is travel demand stays strong, but also diversify in terms of the domestic demand. You know, we're hoping that um, we'll have a lot more of, of diversification of destinations and that are, you know, we have clients, cruise clients, air clients, des- international clients. And what we want to see um, is a bit more diversification of where travelers are choosing to go and to spend their money. Does that mean people should spend their money now for future travel because prices are going to go up? I mean, I know restaurant prices have gone up in an astonishing fashion, although that has to do with the global supply chain. Absolutely. And the inflation component as well. I think I think it's wise um, when you see a deal to to hold on to it. As you know, there's been incredibly generous policies in place from hotels and airlines regarding cancellations and date changes that yeah. I think benefit the traveler. And the fact of the matter is that that costs have gone up. And because demand has stayed strong, there really is no incentive for, you know, travel operators or brands to, to ease up on that. I think the important thing that we'll see to that that point is the competition will increase and 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 the likelihood is that consumers should be able to start seeing a lot more competitive price points from international destinations that might be a, a bit farther away. Huh. So um, they're going to be more incentivized to perhaps relax prices to places like Fiji or the South Pacific as these destinations open up. So I think it's going to be definitely a buyer's market, so to speak, it coming up um, because of the, the larger amount of inventory out there. Interesting. Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you, Danny. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this week's show. As always, I wish all of our listeners a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.